0: Good morning and welcome to Mountain Radio Astronomy for the month of June. My name is Sue Ann Heatherly and I'll be your host this morning. Our guest this morning is Dr. Jeff Mangum, who is at the uh, NRAO facility in Charlottesville at our headquarters. And Dr. Mangum got his PhD at the University of Virginia. Is that right?
1: That's right, yeah.
0: And then you went out west, young man.
1: I did. I went to Texas for a couple of years. And then I went to Arizona and... um... Kind of like, uh, like a bad penny, I ended up back at NRAO.
0: <laughs> well, that's great. Well, you've been with NRAO for a while. Yes. Yeah. At our facility out there in Tucson back when we operated a pretty shiny little telescope called the 12-meter. Mm-hmm. You were the deputy director there, is that right? I, I was the
1: deputy director, and I was the so-called friend of the telescope uh, for the 12-meter uh, following Phil Jewell. So a, that's a right. Name, a name well-known around here. Uh, that was in 1995. Uh, took over for Phil. And then we closed the telescope in August of 2000 So um, and started the uh, ALMA project duties at that point.
0: So tell us what you're up to now in general. I'll ask you about your research on the Green Bank telescope eventually if we don't get to that. But right. tell us in general what you, what you do now.
1: Uh, in, strictly speaking, I'm a scientist in the associated with the ALMA project, Autocoma Large Millimeter Array.
0: Tell the folks a little bit about ALMA. I don't yeah. think we've covered that in any great detail.
1: Yeah, that's uh, NRAO's next big project. It's actually a very big project to build an array of antennas to be operated from 30 gigahertz up to 900 gigahertz, so observations starting at the highest frequency that the GBT operates and going to about the highest frequency that you can do from the ground with radio astronomy. The antennas are going to be of two different designs but all of the same diameter, 12 meters in diameter. Uh, There will be up to 64 of those antennas. Initially there are going to be 50 of those and uh, they're going to be sighted on a very high site in the Chilean Andes. So if you go to Chile, and then you go to mainly the northern part of Chile, you go to a place called the Atacama Desert. And it's, as the name implies, it's a desert in the steps of the Andes Mountains. It's at an elevation of about 16,000 feet, so 5,000 meters. Yeah, incredibly high. Have you been there? I've been there, yeah. yeah. What is it? What, well, can you describe <laughs> it for us? Yeah, it's... Um, it's it's a desert but chile has vast natural resources and you can see that in in the landscape and in the soil uh copper mining is is a big big uh endeavor down there uh, a big part of their economy is supported by the mining industry and they um you can see it in the soil you just pick up a rock and you could you could see fool's gold and and, and lots of minerals in it Today, if you go to the to the Alma site, go to 16,000 feet, uh, they have you use um, supplemental oxygen. At that altitude, you, you, your certain functions like your brain don't don't work too well. <laughs> That's not and, good. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you can offset those effects by by carrying a little oxygen bottle around that kind of injects a little bit of oxygen into the air that you breathe around you. But in the days that I went out there um, several years ago, we didn't do that. And uh, it was interesting. Can you tell that your
0: brain's not working as well? You can,
1: and it's it's a very weird effect. It's, um, you do something that you know is very stupid. And you know it's stupid, but you can't stop yourself (laughs) from doing it. I also went to an even higher site at 18,000 feet that was kind of a test site for this, a project that the Smithsonian wants to do, uh, that NRIO was involved with, and we went up there and uh, couldn't quite get to the summit, uh, and um, I had to walk the rest of the way, and there were some additional effects that I noticed, uh, you know, phys- physiological effects and, um, that are well known to mountain climbers. Uh, you can read about this stuff uh, altitude sickness effects one of them that was particularly uh, two that were one was interesting one was kind of funny but the interesting one was uh, your peripheral vision closes down you literally see the edge of your peripheral vision getting smaller mm-hmm. you see the dark you know the dark area that's your peripheral sort of vision like before you
0: in. faint yeah, before you pass it out It was just something. cool
1: and I was watching this as I was walking across this snowfield and it's like wow that's really neat Maybe a little dangerous, but neat. Yeah. Uh, the other funny one was um, your speech p- slows down. Your brain operates at the same speed, but the speech comes out slower. And I was talking to Simon Radford, who was another NREO astronomer at the time, and I could tell that I was not speaking quite right because he started to smile and, and he says, You know, you're starting to slur your speech. And I uh-huh. said, Oh, yeah, oh, interesting. That is. <laughs> yeah. anyway. So
0: tell me why. Uh, you would pick such a, a hard-to-live-in location to put these antennas.
1: Yeah. The frequency range that it operates at, that's 30 gigahertz up to 900 gigahertz. If you look at the um, absorption and emission spectrum from the Earth's atmosphere, so that's from water and oxygen, you'll find that in that range, there are a large number of both emission and absorption lines, so areas in the transparency of the Earth's atmosphere that get very difficult to see through.
0: So, if you wanted to look at a portion of the radio spectrum where there's water yeah. in the atmosphere, that, those radio waves don't get through. They they're don't absorbed get through by yeah, the water. They,
1: they get, uh, in some cases, completely absorbed by water vapor and in a lot of cases also by oxygen. But it turns out, and there's a nice coincidence with the Earth's atmosphere, that um, the so-called scale height for water vapor, which is the um, distribution, the, the, the maximum height uh, above the surface of the Earth that most of the water exists, is about 4 kilometers. So if you get up above about 4,000 meters, uh, you get up above most of the water vapor. Mm -hmm. and that's a good thing because that's the primary absorber of these photons that we're trying to detect from space through the Earth's atmosphere from uh, that sort of 30 to 900 gigahertz. The good coincidence is that oxygen has a scale height of about eight kilometers, so that means that my story about being on the site and finding it difficult to think, I could still breathe. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we can go to this hot site that's at about six, 5,000 meters, and be above most of the water vapor, which is the primary problem with being able to see uh, see sources outside the atmosphere at these high frequencies. But I can still breathe.
0: Yeah, yeah. that's good. Yeah. That's a nice trade-off. That's a nice
1: trade-off, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so uh, when this telescope is ready, and, and I'm not sure when that'll be, but when this new facility is ready, will you go there to... 16,000 feet to use it?
1: Short answer, no. In fact, nobody will. Observers will never go to the observatory to do their observations. They will do it all remotely. The setup for the site, in fact, has very little regular occupancy on the 5,000-meter site. Uh, just the telescopes are up there. We have to move these telescopes around to give us different resolutions on the sky, but for the most part, there's very little in the way of, of human activity other than moving telescopes around and doing other maintenance issues uh, at that site. They have a, um, actually it's starting to construct now what's called the operational support facility, and that's down at a more livable elevation of about 10,000 feet at okay. uh, 20. 2,500 meters, down a a road a few kilometers from from the main site. And that's expected to be the place where the telescope operator stays, all the support staff, a rather large facility.
0: And they'll just travel up to the telescopes on an as-needed basis. As-needed,
1: yeah. And for, for most people, that should be needed very infrequently. Observers should never, in fact, probably won't, even be allowed to come to the facility to do their observations. And in fact, most observers will not ever know when their observations are going to happen. And that's another feature of of ALMA. It's going to be a dynamically scheduled observatory, meaning that for any given block of time, the current weather conditions will dictate which projects get scheduled. And it turns out that even at millimeter and submillimeter wavelengths, this 30 to 900 gigahertz range, there's quite a range of allowed weather conditions for being able to do projects at certain frequencies. So, for example, when the weather's not that great, Mm -hmm. you would do the lower frequency projects. And when the weather's good, you would do the higher frequency projects, roughly speaking. But that gets figured out dynamically. And hopefully, with software and not with people, on a sort of several-hour-type interval. So as an observer, you just know that when you have a project in the queue, you just know you have a project in the queue, and you'll be notified at some point that you have data.
0: And then what will happen?
1: Well, then that data will be processed through a pipeline. The ALMA data is is rather large in, in structure and complicated in that it requires some sophisticated software to even do a basic analysis of it and produce a, a picture, an mm-hmm. image. And the plan is to provide a, what's called a pipeline where you take the data off of the telescope and you do a basic analysis of it to produce, in this case, an image. And that gets deposited on a, on a uh, computer where the PI, the PI of the project, the, the scientist who proposed to do the project can grab it and do his science with it.
0: Do you find that you have basic infrastructure to worry about, like Internet? Yeah. I mean, how will yeah. that data get from 16,000 feet to the computer where the scientist can get it?
1: Yeah. In the, the fact, that was one of the major hurdles to overcome. Uh, this is, is it was a rather remote site. It's, it's not in Santiago. In fact, it's way to the north of Chile, uh, where the largest nearby city is Anafagasta on the coast, several hours' drive internet is not widely available in fact the the um, nearest town to the alma site is a little village called san pedro de atacama it's only got about 900 people in it but when we first started investigating this this area for a possible sighting of the of the alma array that town had a switchboard operator a person mm-hmm. who's now the mayor in fact uh, who used to do you know, you would talk to Manolita every time you had to make a phone call, or every time a phone call came in. Uh, the power was uh, generator power, and it went off every night at midnight. You just had no power after midnight. That was on and,
0: purpose, right? Yeah, yeah, You're yeah. are gonna turn yeah. the generator yeah, they, off. Yeah, they the didn't next want it. They didn't
1: think it didn't, didn't, <laughs> didn't need to run it. So, uh, very low tech uh, area. It's it's now got internet cafes and so forth. It's it's gotten made its way into the modern era, but it's yeah, the internet was it was a difficult deal. So data gets collected at the observatory and from the OSF facility, the operational support facility. It will be distributed via, via Ethernet, but uh, at a slower rate, to what are called research centers in the, in, in the partner uh, contributors to the ALMA project. And I didn't really describe that, but ALMA is a collaboration between two primary partners. Um, North America on one side, and that's the U.S. plus Canada. And then uh, the second half is a European, a collection of European countries that are led by the European Southern Observatory. Now, so two partners, there's actually a third partner, and, and that's Japan. They came into the project rather late, had always always been interested in it, but are joining the project by adding a bit to it, so they're going to add some telescopes and some pres- receivers, and in, uh, in each of those partner groups, Japan, the U.S., and, and um, Europe, will be what are called um, uh, support centers mm-hmm. or science centers. Uh, the science center for the U.S. will be in Charlottesville, and the data will all eventually go to those support centers, and it's expected that those uh, scientific support centers will serve as the focal point for the astronomers in those countries or those regions. So for the U.S., U.S. astronomers that get data from the ALMA array will go to Charlottesville may not physically go to Charlottesville, but it will will get their data from Charlottesville and their support for analyzing that data and and basically for using ALMA. So similarly, in Europe, the people will go to the European Southern Observatory or wherever, in fact, they end up citing that particular science center. And then in Japan, they will go to the Japanese equivalent of that.
0: So you said in the beginning when we were doing the introduction that when you worked at the... uh, NRAO facility in Tucson, that you were called the friend of the telescope in addition to your other duties. And I would imagine that it means the same thing as it means here, that you were a scientist with expertise that would assist visiting scientists and getting the most out of their telescope time. Will there be friends of ALMA at these various centers around the world?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um Exactly, as you described it, good, very good parallel. These are people that know how the instrument works, can help observers not only develop proposals or or research projects that fit what the ALMA array can do uh, scientifically, but also that's on the front end of things, but also will be able to help on the output end where an observer has a data set and they may not be experienced in, in radio astronomy or radio interferometry and be able to get some assistance from those scientists to analyze their data. ALMA is set up to be very much like a NASA project, a, a s- satellite project, where you're not expected to be an expert or a black belt in radio astronomy or radio interferometry. You just need to know what science you want to do. That's, that's the, the goal that we're striving towards. So you don't have to really even know any radio astronomy, to be able to get something out of, of ALMA.
0: Well, that makes sense. The Hubble Space Telescope control is left to the technicians that really know what they're doing, and the astronomers are there for yeah. the data.
1: Yeah, and in fact, it's it's that, and then also the data analysis. The uh, A major hurdle, I think, for most people who aren't radio astronomers, and furthermore, who aren't radio astronomers that know interferometry right, for tough. using the VLA yeah is having knowing what to do with this uv data which is this odd looking data and how do i turn that into a picture the idea is with alma is that you don't need to know that and in fact there hopefully won't be a lot of instances where you have to take the the raw data and turn it into an image it's it's the hope is that this pipeline that i mentioned earlier will produce a science quality data set. Mm-hmm. And that might be just a single image. It might be an image cube. That that a scientist can just take that and go and do the science with it. Don't bother with right. trying to analyze the data, uh, run it through a data processing, like you have to do with VLA data right, right now.
0: What kind of questions is ALMA going to answer?
1: It's going to address just about every area of, of astronomy that you can think of. ALMA will do something in that area of research. In many areas it will really add a huge amount of information to what we know. Right now the limitations for what we can do with studying objects using radio telescopes, studying external galaxies or star formation regions are generally sensitivity limited or spatial resolution limited. And ALMA has spatial resolution and sensitivity that is, um, in many cases, a 100 times or more, that which is available today at any facility.
0: So this is really going to be a unique instrument.
1: Yeah. It's yeah.
0: sort of probing a part of the spectrum that hasn't been sufficiently probed. That's right. Probed, and it's yeah. also a large enough instrument to do, to see deeper and...
1: That's right. And yeah, generally the, the VLA, uh, the university millimeter facilities—that's the the Berkeley, Illinois, Maryland array in California, the Owens Valley Radio Observatory in California, um, the plaster de Bure Interferometer in in um, in France—they all laid the groundwork. But those facilities um, are are small in uh, nature. In a in sense, they're like element.
0: prototypes. It's a
1: very good analogy. In fact, the many of the people who developed those instruments are working on ALMA now in some capacity.
0: So when's this wonderful new instrument going to be ready?
1: Well, it's, it's happening now. The first antennas will be delivered about a year from now. And when I say delivered, it means that it's been assembled and, and crudely tested and uh, handed over to, to NRIO in this case. And after that first antenna, antennas arrive about one every two months. Mm-hmm. For the next several years, once you get about eight antennas, so sometime probably in about two thousand nine or two thousand ten, you can start to do science and that 's called early science in in the Alma management vernacular um, and that will be the point at which you can actually make scientific images that are that are interesting that at least match and in some cases surpass. Which you can do now with with existing facilities. That's
0: kind of a cool model to yeah. start using the instrument before it's all yeah one hundred percent put together.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of b- benefit to doing that. Um, yes, your facility's not complete yet, but it's good to allow people to start to use it on a limited basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, by having people use the facility on a limited basis, you're allowed you 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 allow yourself to investigate. How well, in fact, the facility works as an observatory and uh, allows you to debug things and 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 get closer to the point where it actually functions as a as a real regular operational observatory.
0: Neat. Well, I'm I'm glad you were here to talk about that. We. Uh... We mentioned it, mentioned this uh, ALMA telescope in our last episode of Mountain Radio Astronomy briefly, but we needed an expert around to be able to say (laughs) some more about it. But right now you're not using ALMA. You're here in Green Bank using uh, the big dish out there. Tell us what you're up to. Right.
1: Um, Well, generally speaking, I use uh, millimeter spectral line emission, so spectral line emission from molecules. Uh, in a variety of environments and um, I also supplement that with studies of the dust emission which is also part of this molecular gas component in a lot of environments in the interstellar medium. Use that to study the physical conditions in in those environments. So in general that for me is studies of star formation regions. So I look at a a molecule like carbon monoxide or, or formaldehyde, measure its emission and by uh measuring the intensity of that emission, I can get a an estimate as to what the density the spatial density in the gas is, what the temperature is, and what the um, um h- how much uh molecular hydrogen there is in that region uh so that's star formation regions but our galaxy is is not particularly unique, and there's lots of galaxies uh, that also have molecular emission in them that is is detectable, though it's a lo- little bit more difficult because they're much farther away. Well, I'm a, really just applying a, a technique that I've used to study star formation regions in our galaxy. In our galaxy, to look at star formation regions in other galaxies, and uh, so we're looking for formaldehyde in. Um, mainly nearby galaxies. Things that nearby, in this case, is less than about 25 megaparsecs. You got to um,
0: tell the folks what a megaparsec yeah, is. Yeah.
1: Okay. So the uh, parsec is if you were to go one parsec away from the Earth, um, and you looked back at the distance between the uh, Sun and the Earth, that would be one arc second, one 360th of a degree. Of angle, so that would be the separation between the Earth and the uh, and the Sun. So we are uh, 25 million times that far away, so, and which by and cosmological standards, <laughs> that's 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 a lot.
0: So that's so it's 75 million light years. Yeah, that's right. And that's too far to even explain. We yeah. can spend an yeah. hour trying yeah. to convert that back to miles yeah. or something. And, that we're and by
1: extragalactic with. standards. That's nearby. That's considered nearby. So but you're
0: looking at formaldehyde. I don't think we've talked to anybody that, uh, isn't that embalming fluid?
1: It is. <laughs> yeah. It and is. it's out
0: there in space. It's
1: out there in space. Yeah, there's a lot of it. It's, it was one of the first molecules discovered back in the late, late 1960s, uh, mainly because it has a few transitions that are low frequencies. In fact, it's the transitions that I'm looking at now. Um, one is at 6-centimeter wavelength, and the other is at 2-centimeter wavelength. But um yeah, it's it's one of the more abundant molecules. Um it's just a step or two behind uh, CO and uh O H and a and a few others. I'd put it in the top ten. But it
0: um what's its um formula?
1: H two. So two hydrogens, a carbon and an oxygen.
0: So that's a fairly simple molecule as molecules yeah.
1: go. Yeah, it's pretty simple. Uh it's um um rather abundant it's got carbon and oxygen in it, in it which makes it makes it rather abundant it also uh, has accessible transitions in the centimeter and the in the millimeter range we've used it quite extensively to study the dense gas in um, in mainly in star formation regions but now in external galaxies
0: so you're mentioning that you can uh, see effects in these environments you can you can Somehow or other, determine something about the temperature of the gas mm-hmm. yeah. and about the density of the gas. Yeah. What parameters do you look at? What tells you if the gas is uh, hot or cold?
1: It's um, well for temperature measurements. We we use uh, we kind of cater what we want to what physical conditions we want to measure to the types of transitions that we're looking at. And for temperature measurements, um, I tend to use a different set of transitions that are actually at higher frequencies. And um, it turns out it's a feature of the, the way the energy levels, the rotational energy levels in the molecule are, are situated, that I can compare to the intensity from two separate transitions and derive from that the kinetic temperature. And it just has to do with the fact that the transitions that I'm comparing are only dependent on the temperature in the gas, and um, now a, a transition from a molecule happens because this molecule is sitting in in space and it collides with a molecular hydrogen molecule. and when it does that, there's a transfer of energy mm-hmm. um, to usually to the to the to the molecule, in this case formaldehyde. That causes it to rotate faster and and go to a higher energy state. And, and then, of course, Einstein predicted that a molecule or an atom just sitting out in space uh, in an energy state will decay to a lower energy state after a certain amount of time. And that's what happens with. So, the higher the, the
0: temperature, the more bombardments the formaldehyde gets yeah, from hydrogen?
1: Yeah, yeah. And um, the more bombardments it gets, so the. Uh, Comparison of this ratio of transitions from formaldehyde uh, will approach a uh, let's say a lower number. Um, mm-hmm. It'll it'll populate more of the the higher energy levels in this comparison, and that yeah. directly indicates a higher temperature. Now with with these measurements, the measurements I'm doing with the GBT, I'm looking at density, and there's a different effect that happens there. Um, the transitions we're looking at—one is at six centimeter, these others at two centimeter—they have a, an, a unique feature to their collisional excitation, and it's just due to uh, some very subtle uh, quantum mechanics in the way the the, the molecule uh, emits. Just
0: simple quantum mechanics. Just, <laughs> yeah, but this
1: this is a this is a subtlety. It actually was a difficult problem to understand in the nineteen seventies. Uh, And eventually, it was Charlie Towns, right, Nobel Prize winner, that that explained it. But what happens is that this um, this transition, due to a what's called a collisional cooling effect, will normally, under at low densities, densities less than about ten to the fifth particles per cubic centimeter, will uh, actually absorb all continuum radiation, including the cosmic microwave background. So this was the paradox, was that there were these molecular clouds observed that didn't have internal sources of continuum. And those molecular clouds were seen in absorption and it wasn't clear what they were absorbing until we realized that it was absorbing this cosmic microwave background that's everywhere. But at a density of about 10 to the fifth, uh, five times 10 to the fifth or so, that collisional cooling effect gets quenched, and the transition goes into emission. So what does that mean? It means a very simple thing. It means I can go to the GBT, I can point it to any place in the galaxy or to an external galaxy. And if I see emission from this this transition, Mm -hmm. I know that a lower limit to the density is about 10 to the fifth. And that's interesting because that is the threshold for star formation. Uh, Cores of molecular clouds in our own galaxy are known to form stars if their densities are above about 10 to the 5th or 10 to the 6th or so. Mm -hmm. So it's a very simple way of identifying the regions, in this case in external galaxies, that are forming stars. Cool. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, that, that didn't hurt so bad after all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought that explanation was going to be yeah. painful, but it wasn't so bad. <laughs> well, good luck. And I, I'd like to have you back at some point in time to tell us, give us a project update on ALMA, too. Oh, yeah, That'd sure. Yeah,
1: I'll be out here a lot, I'm sure.
0: Okay, well, thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. That's about it. Thanks for joining us for Mountain Radio Astronomy.